Good morning, family of God. Richard Smallwood was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and moved to Washington, D.C. as a child. His stepfather was a preacher who founded Union Temple Baptist Church. Richard formed his first gospel group at the age of 11 with some kids from his neighborhood. When he was in eighth grade at Brown Junior High, Roberta Flack was his music teacher. If you know who Roberta Flack is, you might look up Lauren Hill and then go back a little ways. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. During high school, Richard auditioned for the Howard University music program. He got in and majored in classical piano with a minor in voice. While at Howard, he was mentored by Donnie Hathaway. You can search for him, too. Donnie Hathaway shared with him a jazzy version of Nothing But the Blood and told him to play and sing what you feel. It's all God's music. It was in the basement of the fine arts department at Howard that Richard wrote the song, I Love the Lord. I Love the Lord was performed by the Richard Smallwood singers and spent 80 weeks on the Billboard gospel chart. And you may be familiar with that song if over the Christmas holidays you happen to go back and watch Whitney Houston's movie, The Preacher's Wife. She selected it and performed the song because she remembered it from her church in New Jersey. Now, you might think that this kind of success would bring Richard Smallwood fulfillment. However, success never leads to fulfillment. Fulfillment often actually leads to success. By the late 90s, Richard was suffering from depression. He had difficulty getting up and out of bed. He wouldn't take a bath. He wouldn't shave. He found it impossible to write music. He constantly thought about suicide. Listen to his words. He said, I felt like a fraud. I would get up and talk about Jesus being the center of my joy. But as soon as I got off stage, I would go into a dark hole. Richard Smallwood wrote Total Praise, the song we just heard in 1996. His mother was suffering with dementia and a family friend was dying from cancer. And the song came to him in a dream. In his words, he says, I felt left by God. I was trying to write a pity party song, but God pulled me to do a praise song. God said, I want your praise no matter what the situation you are in, good or bad. It's about trusting him. How are we supposed to give God praise no matter what the situation, good or bad? Isn't it naive to consider God's character as good when life throws us difficulties? Isn't it inconsiderate to celebrate God's goodness when there's so much pain all around? Well, The Holy Spirit in Psalm 121 gives us a reason to give God total praise. Even when sin inside us or sin outside of us would want us to stop trusting him. The promise of this psalm, in the words of one Old Testament scholar, is that 
The Lord will protect your soul everywhere, always from every danger. The promise is the Lord is your help. The Lord is your keeper. So, let's hear this word today. I want to bow for a moment. Go back to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help to get the truth of this psalm. Would you bow with me? Our Father, I I lift my eyes to the hills. Because I can't help myself. I pray that you would be our help this morning to get what you want to say to us on this last Sunday in 2019, on this Sunday morning at Christ Community Church. We pray that you would help Christ Community Church hear your word today. Help us to get it. Help us to deepen our reliance upon you and to see you as our help, as our keeper. Illuminate our minds today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the pilgrim who is preparing to embark on the journey toward God, there are certain assurances that we need to consider. See, some of y'all, like Tyler Smith in the back row, are totally cool driving down to Davis or Lawton or driving over to Kathmandu, Nepal, and embarking on an excursion. Others of us who happen to be a little less compulsive, a little more obsessive, need a little more assurance of not where we are going, but how we going to get there. See, I may know my destination, Mount Everest, Mount Scott. Same to me, same to me. But If I don't know what's between here and there, the destination may not be enough for me to take my first step. That's the scenario we find ourselves in in Psalm 121. This is a psalm of ascent. And one context of the psalms of ascent is that pilgrims would sing them as they ascend up the mountain to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast day, like the festival of tabernacles. Now, the deal is Jerusalem is on a mountain and it's surrounded by mountains. Now, mountains are treacherous for a number of reasons. One, it's a mountain. It's a big rock or a bunch of big old rocks, and they could fall on you or you could fall on them, and that is treacherous. Two, it's easy to get lost if you don't know your way. Some of us don't walk in mountains where there are staircases, like they find them in Frozen, and therefore we have no hope of getting to the top or the bottom of the mountain safely. You can get lost if you don't know your way. Three, robbers like to hide in mountains. They find a lookout spot and they could ambush you. Now, if you're a pilgrim trekking to Jerusalem, you're likely carrying a good number of your personal possessions and a good amount of cash, and you're an easy target. So it would be easier, instead of making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it would be easier to just stay away. There's too many dangers. It's too perilous. But God wants us near him. God wants us near him. In the presence of joy, there is, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. 
At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. See, once you get to Jerusalem, you got nothing to worry about. When you get there, there's protection. You're on a mountain. When you get there, there's fun. You're there for a week-long feast. It's an all-inclusive festival, complete with food and dancing and unhindered worship. Worship of a God who always meets your needs. When you get to Jerusalem, there's family and there's friends. You get to celebrate with people who have experienced the same covenant faithfulness as you have. God wants you near him. And listen, in the Christian life, it is exactly the same way. The God of the universe, who made you to enjoy life in his presence, wants you near him. He wants you to be with him. He wants to be your protection. He wants you to feast on him. He wants you to be part of his family. And to demonstrate that desire, he did what we celebrated last week. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and came to earth, born to a poor family in the city of David, and was given the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. And what does that salvation look like? It looks like Emmanuel, God with us. God demonstrated his desire to be with you and with me by coming to be with us. And he showed us that there is no distance too great. There is no place on earth too far for him to reach us. If this morning you're here and you know that you are far from God, God brought you here this morning to hear this word. I love you. I created you for me. I want the best for you. That means knowing me. Turn from your sins. Trust in me for your life, for your joy, for your love. And you'll be with me forever. There is no place too far away for God to reach us. He loves us and he wants us to be with him. But sometimes, like me in hiking... There can be obstacles between us and our true destination. So Psalm 121 gives us three assurances that we need for the journey. The first is assurance of God's attentiveness. The second is assurance of God's protection. And the third is assurance of God's blessing in all of life. That's what we see in this psalm. First, let's consider the assurance of God's attentiveness. Look with me in your bulletin at the second couplet, which we find in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The image we have here is of someone stumbling, or rather of someone not stumbling. They're not stumbling Because their foot is not moved. That's what's meant by he will not let your foot be moved. Now, this is important for someone who is setting off on a pilgrimage. What happens if on your journey you twist your ankle? What happens? You don't go very far. What happens if on your journey you sprain your knee? Thank you. You can't get where you're going. Not only does the journey become more difficult, if not impossible, because you can no longer walk, but now 
you are much more susceptible to any other dangers, be them robbers or animals, whether small squirrels, small mice, or dogs, because it's hard to limp away from a fight. But the assurance here is of God's attentiveness. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God will not be caught sleeping. Unlike OU's secondary. Now, when I hear this, I'm reminded of the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. The Bible describes Jehoshaphat as one who, whose, quote, heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And in chapter 20, we find him crying out to God because the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the people of Mount Seir are coming with a multitude to battle against Judah. Jehoshaphat is terrified. His courage is turned to fear. And the Bible says that Jehoshaphat, quote, set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaims a nationwide fast. All of Judah comes together to seek help from the Lord. And as they pray, Jehoshaphat cries out, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the spirit of the Lord comes on one of the worship leaders who says this. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. The Lord will be with you. So they do it. They go out in the desert and they go to face these armies that are coming toward them. As they go out, they start singing and praising God. And the words they used to praise are, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they get to the lookout point to see the approaching army, they look out and all they see is a multitude, a horde of dead bodies. The armies that were coming to fight against them are lying, slain in front of them. See, what had happened was the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, people of Mount Seir. They turned on themselves. The Ammonites, the Moabites turned on people of Mount Seir and destroyed them. And the Moabites and the Ammonites turned on each other and destroyed each other. So that by the time that that God's people got to that point, everybody was already destroyed. See, God will not be caught sleeping. See, friends, God is totally able to keep you from stumbling. He is totally able to not let your foot be moved. Now, some of you may be feeling like you are limping into 2020. 2019 is giving you the runaround. And you may be asking, why do I feel like I'm falling headlong into a new year? Why do I feel like I have no apparent guarantee that I'm not going to crash? You may feel like you keep stumbling over the same sin patterns. You may feel like you're stumbling in your relationships. You may feel like you're stumbling with your relationship with God. Maybe you feel like you've been caught sleeping. It's easy to fall asleep. It's easy to stumble when you're caught sleeping. So I want to speak to the stumblers in the room. Don't give me your hands, but are you a stumbler? 
I want to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. In this text, we are reminded that just like Jehoshaphat and Judah, we are in a battle. It's a battle that is always raging. It is always happening. And the sneaky thing is we often forget it's even going on. Good is fighting against evil, and it is, it is winning. In fact, good already won. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the first fruits of all who are in Christ. We're now between the secured victory that Jesus claimed when he rose from the dead and the manifested victory that will look like universal peace under the lordship of Jesus. We're between the already and the not yet. In the meantime, we're in a spiritual battle. And Paul, in the sixth chapter of his letter to Ephesians, tells us to put on the full armor of God. He walks through what it means to get dressed for battle. And really all he's saying is, put on Christ. Believe the gospel. Appropriate the gospel in every realm of your existence. Let it sink deep into every part of your heart, your mind, and your life. And specifically, when he gets to the feet, he says this. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. He says, stand firm, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Stand firm, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for our sins. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Yet, he took our place by subjecting himself to his own judgment. That means that all who are in Christ, who trust in him for forgiveness of sins, have turned from their sins to trust in him, all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, are justified in Christ. We stand in the righteousness of Christ, righteous before God. Therefore, we have peace with God. That's what's meant by the, it's why it's called the gospel of peace. And that peace gives us stability in life. We are prepared to stand in the shaky soil of life on this side of Jesus' return because our peace with God secures for us a stability that cannot be shaken. If we have peace with God, that means that regardless of the sin we still struggle with, regardless of the relationships we are stumbling in, Regardless of if we feel like our relationship with God is shaky, God is the one who holds us up in the midst of the shakiness. Such that not even a 7.1 magnitude earthquake can shake you from the attentive God who promises to keep us. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Death, no. Life, no. Angels, no. Demons, no. Nothing can separate us. This is an attentive God who sees us and who holds us up. Now, for those who are on the pilgrimage to the presence of God, not only do we have the assurance of God's attentiveness, we have the assurance of God's protection. Let's look at the next couplet in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, when the the psalmist says the Lord is your keeper, he is saying that God is his protector, his 
guard. He watches over him. Notice how many times in this psalm God's protection is emphasized. We already saw it twice in the previous couplet. He who keeps you. Everyone say keeps. Keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps. Everyone say keeps. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We see it here. The Lord is your keeper. We'll see it three times in the next couplet. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. This is talking about God's protection. Six times in six verses, we hear the psalmist emphasize the Lord's protection of his people, his guardianship. For those who are on the journey, we are assured of God's protection. Now, this point is illustrated in the rest of the couplet. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, the psalmist is using figurative language here to describe both the imminence of God's protection and the range or the extent of his protection. I want to start with the imminence of his protection. Well, first we'll talk about the shade where the protection is, his shade on the right hand. The Bible frequently speaks of the realm of protection of a king in terms of shade. To live in the shade of a king or under the king's shadow meant that the king would protect them against outside oppression. Everyone say shade. Shade. Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14 try to put courage in the hearts of God's people. After God's people had wandered through the wilderness and they come to the edge of Canaan, the edge of the promised land, they send out 12 spies to go check out the land. And they come back. They come back and say, man, the grapes are off the chain. It's massive. We got, we got everything we could ever need in this land. However, there are also giants in the land. And we can't defeat these folks. Ten of the spies come back and say, better not go in. But Joshua and Caleb try to put courage in the heart of God's people, and they say this. They say that the shade of the people of Canaan has been removed, but the Lord is with you. He's with his people. He's telling them that his protection is going to go with them. Similarly, In Isaiah chapter 30, we hear God warn his people through the mouth of Isaiah not to seek shelter in the shade of Egypt. Egypt could never protect the people from oppression. In fact, God's saying that they were the source of oppression and they would be the source of humiliation if Israel runs to them for shade. In Lamentations 4 verse 20, the poet is lamenting the people's hypocrisy and they say they, that they, they had said they would live among the nations under the shade of the Lord, but they had not kept their promise. And here in Psalm 121, God is promising to be the shade of his people. See, God will not put up with anyone else being the shade of his people because no one else can protect his people like he can. God is the only one under whose shadow we can dwell in security, in safety. But this protection is not the kind of protection that unknown citizens procure simply by having a social security card. This is is the kind of protection that is imminent. It is close at hand. Listen to what he says. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. 
This means this is a protection that is closer to you than any king could ever be. This is a protection that is right up in the midst of your problems. This is a protection that is right up in the midst of your relationships. This is a protection that is right up in the midst of your heart. This is a protection that dwells with you individually, that knows your name, knows your history, knows your story, knows your thoughts, knows you deeply. This is a shade that is at your right hand. It won't ever leave you. And not only is this an imminent protection, but saints, this, listen to the range of this protection. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, we in Oklahoma know about sun that strikes you by day. The sun is an oppressive heat, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. We need shade from the sun. But we also need shade at night. We need protection at night. See, I can see the dangers that come in the day, but I can't always see the dangers that look at night. And what God promises is that he will be our shade over both. The way one scholar describes it is like this. The Lord's protection avails against the known and the unknown. Perils of day and night. The most overpowering of forces and the most insidious. See, the pilgrim who sets out on a journey to God, will face some dangers that will feel like they are overpowering. Just like fighting against the Oklahoma sun in August. And the truth is, there are some dangers that are overpowering for us. We cannot stand up under some perils. There are some struggles that are too great for us to bear. But there are no struggles that are too great for Jesus. There are some struggles, some dangers in the pilgrim's journey that are too insidious for us. They sneak up on us. They surprise us. They don't show their face. They don't announce their arrival. They come as one little overindulgence. They come as one conversation that's a little bit too emotionally close with somebody of the opposite sex who's not my spouse. They come as one little white lie. One little piece of gossip. They sneak up on us. But how are we assured that we have God's imminent protection? How are we assured that, that we have God's protection over the overpowering and the insidious dangers? Look at the end of verse 2. Look with me. The Lord who made heaven and earth. Who made heaven and earth. See, God is the creator. God made you. God knows how many hairs are on your head. God knows every thought that crosses through your mind before it crosses through your mind. And who made the sun? God. Who made the moon? God. Don't you know? That the God who made you and the God who made the sun and the God who made the moon can protect you from you. 
can protect you from the sun, can protect you from the moon, can protect you from those perils that you can see, can protect you from those perils that you can't see. You don't even know and you won't know until you get to heaven. How many dangers God has already protected you from. How often he has looked after you when you couldn't look after yourself. How often you tried to stand in your own strength, not realizing you were falling, but God made the earth stand still. How often do we simply exist, breathe under the sovereignty of a good God who sees us and who promises to be with us and who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and who gave us the Holy Spirit so we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even when we doubt. That he is with us and will never leave us and forsake us. This is the God who assures us, assures us of his attentiveness, who assures us of his protection, and who assures us of his blessing in all of life. Look at this last couplet in verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In these last two verses, we have a promise of God's blessing. Notice the tense of these keeps. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is a God who always keeps his promises, and he's promising that you will have his blessing, those who walk in Christ. Now, this assurance is that God will keep you, will bless you. He will keep you from, and he will keep you for. Look at this in verse 7. He will keep you from. What will he keep you from? All evil. Some evil? No. All evil. But chance, man, you don't see my struggle. You don't know what I'm going through. I've experienced evil. I've experienced hatred. I've experienced from without. I've experienced from within. So what could God mean by keeping you from all evil? Well, in Romans chapter 8, we've already talked about some of it. What we read is that God will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So that even those things that come at you as evil, God can turn them into good. Remember what Job said. When his home was taken and his kids was taken and his health were taken. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember what Joseph said after being subjected to slavery and to false accusation and to imprisonment. When God exalted him in front of even his enemies, he said, 
What you meant for evil, God intended for what? For good. See, God keeping us from evil doesn't mean no evil will come in you, to you. What it does mean is that we have a God who can redeem even the evil that comes at you and to you and in you. He keeps us from all evil by his presence with us. But not only does he keep us from evil, he keeps us for something. In church, listen up. He will keep your life. Now, life here is, it could be translated soul. It's your entire being. It's all of you. Your entire existence will be kept. That includes, verse 8, he will keep you going out and you coming in. This is all of your endeavors. Everything you put your hand to, he will keep, he will guard, he will protect. He will take care of you. This is a blessing on the work that God calls you to do. Has God called you to be a teacher? Then teach your heart out. Why? Because God has promised to bless it. Are you an engineer? Then work your heart out. Design your heart out. Why? Because God has promised to keep your going out and your coming in. Are you a doctor? Then labor with all of the strength he's given you. Why? Because he's promised to bless it, to keep it. You're going out and you're coming in. God is keeping you for the good works he's called for you to do. The good works he's prepared for you to do, he has given them to you and he has promised to keep them. This is an assurance of God's blessing in all of life for all time. See, we looked at Isaiah chapter 30 where God was warning his people about running away to Egypt and trying to find shade under Pharaoh. But later on in chapter 30, God says, I long to bless you. I wait on high to be gracious to you. God longs to bless his people. He is committed to blessing his people. He is committed to keeping his people. He is committed to protecting his people. In order to continue on the pilgrimage toward the presence of God, God in this psalm has given us an assurance of his attentiveness, an assurance of his protection, an assurance of his blessing in all of life. So you may be asking the question, what do I have to do to get this kind of assurance? Maybe I need some courage, some faith in the midst of my fear to keep on checking on in this journey toward the presence of God. Maybe you select the psalmist in Psalm 84 In my heart are the highways to Zion, but I got a long way to go. What do I have to do to get this assurance to keep me on my way? Well, you may think you got to work for this kind of assurance. You got to do something, exert something, lift something. To get this kind of assurance. But what I love about this psalm is what 
Richard Smallwood said in his opening song is that to get this kind of assurance, you don't have to lift anything except your eyes. He said, I lift my eyes to the hills. And the King King James says, from whence comes my help. I I, I lift my eyes to the the presence of God. I, I lift my eyes to the embodiment of his presence. I lift my eyes to Jesus. The one who, when he lifted his eyes on Jerusalem, knew that lifting his eyes to Jerusalem would mean a pilgrimage to a cross. A pilgrimage through the Via Dolorosa. The Passion Road. But he went that way for you and for me. He traveled that road. He traveled that pilgrimage. So that when you and I lift our eyes to the hill of Golgotha, we no longer see a criminal falsely accused of insurrection dying a death like a nobody. We see the Savior of the world paying the price for your pilgrimage and my pilgrimage and securing that way through his broken body and spilled blood. When we lift our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help, what we see is the maker of heaven and earth demonstrating exhausting and exhaustive love for you and me. That will give you courage for the pilgrimage. That will allow you in the midst of despair to still give God your total praise. I've been told I need to have application in my sermons. Told that way by myself. Told that way by some of your glances. What do we do with a psalm like this? Well, I think one clear application is to download Total Praise by Richard Smallwood and listen to it on repeat. But I think another application is let's lift our eyes to the hills. What are the means of grace that God has given you that help you lift your eyes? To the hills. Is it continual, constant times of prayer? Maybe part of your lunch break, part of your morning routine? Is it setting up a time for that quiet time to get in the Word every day and remind yourself of the Maker who died for you? Now, I don't say that as holding some legalistic schedule over your head. But friends, I'll tell you, when we get the reality that spiritual disciplines are simply a gateway that's flung open to the presence of God, it's no longer a task I got to complete. It's the doorway to freedom and the doorway to blessing. And Dave Edwards once told me, he said, you know, 
the, the way I found to, to finish your life having a quiet time every day is whenever you stop having a quiet time, you get in that rut, just start one more time than you stop. And you'll end your life having a quiet time every day with the Lord. You didn't finish your reading plan in 2019. Don't worry about it. Finish it this year. Make time to welcome the presence of God in your life. Make time for community. Sometimes we need help. Because sometimes life is a place where we stumble. But two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not a second to lift him up. Let's walk this road together. Let's intentionally spend time with each other asking us how our eyes are doing. What we're seeing in the hills. What we're finding from our maker. Let's commit ourselves to individual discipline and corporate discipline for the glory of God. Now, I want to conclude this time by reflecting on the impact that this psalm can have in our lives. Keith Richardson, sorry, Keith Alexander, in an article he wrote for the Washington Post on the life of Richard Smallwood, talks about the reality of someone who was greatly touched and blessed by this song that we heard at the beginning of the sermon. And he writes these words. He says, before six-year-old Anna Grace Marquez Green was fatally shot along with 19 classmates and six adults on December 14, 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut, she loved singing and dancing to gospel music. Anna loved big, rich gospel choirs. Anna loved good music. Anna loved Jesus, says her mother, Nelba Marquez Green. We did not get a graduation We did not get a wedding. We did not get to see her meet milestones. All we had was this funeral. She asked that total praise be performed at it. And his father, Jimmy Green, a jazz saxophonist, remembers standing with his arms outstretched as the choir sang. Smallwood reminds, quote, everyone that the Lord is the source of our strength. And that he is the strength of my life, Green says. Even at that moment, I needed to lift my hands to him. See, what Psalm 121 encourages us is that with all of my life, in the sadness, in the heartache, in the joy, in the celebration, God is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my celebration. He is worthy of my worship. He has promised his attentiveness, his protection, his blessing. Let's walk with him. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you great thanks. None of us sitting in these chairs deserved or could have ever merited the favor that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. None of us could have ever procured salvation for ourselves. None of us could have ever guaranteed hope for ourselves. And yet, you, God, have given that to us. 
by the death and resurrection of your son. Help us as your people to draw near to you, to trust in you, to depend on you. We pray this in Jesus' name.